0: So um, first, I'm going to introduce Leonida Inge. Leonida is pitching from... Yeah. Yeah. I can't turn (laughs) around. About Leonida, she is uh, WUNC's race and Southern culture reporter. She's done in-depth reporting on rural education, organic tobacco, and reporting on the importance of North Carolina's pork industry in Japan. Um, she's a recipient of three Gracie Awards, wow, and has won several awards from the Associated Press, the Radio, Television, Digital News Association, the list keeps going on and on. <laughs> so Leonita is going to be pitching to um, Shireen for Code Switch.
1: Hello. Hi. Wow, well, let's see. When I found out, when I heard that there was a, a new sickle cell drug that was approved, Not too long ago, like my eyes kind of lit up. I was like, what, a new sickle cell drug? Mainly because I have a 17-year-old son with sickle cell. So it's like always on my mind when I hear some type of scientific research that pops up. And you know, sickle cell, you know, it's no joke. Um, It's an inherited disorder. Um, It's, um, it affects, in the United States, mostly African Americans. And um, this can be very, very painful because, you know, you need red blood cells to move oxygen throughout the body. But in sickle cell um, patients, the, the cells are not a circle. They're crescent-shaped. They're like a sickle, which means they get all jumbled up. And then that can cause pain where the jumbling occurs or um, organ problems and failure and worse. You know, so it can really be painful and cause a lot of people to cry a whole for a long time. So this new drug that was approved is called Indari. And Indari, um, what caught my ear was that it was just approved a few months ago, actually. And it's the first sickle cell drug approved in like 20 years. I was like, what the? (laughs) Like 20 years? It took that long. And so I uh, went to... uh, a camp for sickle cell children that, because my son is gone for many years. And I said, let me ask some parents if they've even heard that there's a new drug out called Indari. So I, um, one couple I spoke with was um, the Martins, James and Sheila Martin from High Point, North Carolina. So what do you think even about this this new drug? You know, because, um, I mean, would you have even let your child be a part of a trial for a drug? know. No. Because <laughs> <No. laughs> that was our whole point at the beginning to uh, help her immune
2: system develop on its own.
1: And so they went on to say, so I'm talking to people about a new drug, you know, to help change, help, you know, save a lot of people's lives, and you're talking to parents with children with sickle cell, and they're like, no, I don't think we would let her be a part of a clinical trial. And he went on to ex- say those two words that we hear over and over, guinea pig. You know, he was like, no, I don't think I want my daughter to be a guinea pig. We're just going to help her immune system mice ourselves. You know, we're going to, you know, this is a blood disorder, right? You know, so you can't do too much yourself. You can eat right, you can rest, you can stay hydrated. So, um, the problem that I see, which is probably better with sickle cell um, patients in that realm and circle, is to still get African Americans to take part in clinical trials. And even when it's life or death, it seems that our numbers are very low, even for trials that really affect us disproportionately from prostate cancer on down to asthma. You know, it's barely 2%, 2 to 5% that participate. And so one reason, when you think about even in the 1970s, that the lifespan for a child with sickle cell was like 14 years old. So, you know, you're waiting 20 years for a drug, you know, what does that do to a generation? But one thing that has helped is a drug called hydroxyurea, that came out before Indari. So in, the, in 1980, the hydroxyurea study began, and then about a decade or so after that they say, you know, let's test this on babies. You know, we're always focusing on adults. And so I actually met a lady, know a lady, who said when she found out about this baby hydroxyurea, they call it the Baby Hug Study, she said she jumped on it. She has a 14-year-old son, and he's been a part of that. My son was a part of the Baby Hug Study when he was one, and they wanted to see if they would introduce the hydroxyurea at a younger age, if it could Affect the, ch- the the children or the clients more, and it it, it did. It decreased the number of pain episodes um, just by them taking it. So he's been a he was a part of that for um, several years. So instead of um, I guess. People in the African American community, focusing on like the 40-year-long Tuskegee syphilis study that they still bring up often, why they don't participate in trials. We have people like this lady, Monica Sommers who says, "Oh my goodness, we need to be running towards the trials and try to change that relationship of trust, you know, between the African American community and um, doctors and researchers and scientists." You know, so much suspicion and doubt there. It's, is crazy, but. You know, because people like Monica Summers took a chance, the life expectancy for kids, or people with sickle cell, is now over 40 years old. And that just shows you, you know, what can happen. Thank you. Thank you.
3: All right, thank you for sharing that with me. I think I, I feel like I heard a few stories there. Um, so the one story that came that I heard come out early was, "All right, why has it taken 20 years for there to be a new drug to fight this disease?" And my first question was, um, "Is are you posing that question because you're wondering because it affects majority African American people that there wasn't a strong enough?" Push to get a drug uh, out there faster. Yeah, that's what yeah, that was my, black people are. Well, affected you have to get this.
1: people, do you have to test the drugs? You can't, you know, they can't. Oh, so, be, so, it's the trials, that's so the, the problem.
3: So, so, what you're saying is there's not enough people who would go into trials, and that's why it's taken 20 years. And the reason that there are not enough people uh, to go to trials is because there is people don't trust the system because of the Tuskegee experiment and...
1: And because there's um, a lot of money isn't steered towards such a minority illness that some may consider. Okay, so there's the money And it's geographically sometimes difficult where pockets of a lot of African Americans are to even get to these studies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spoke to doctors at the NIH, and of course people participate there. They know what they do, and a lot of people, you know, people, that's what they do. But if you live in like eastern North Carolina where there's a whole trail of black men with prostate cancer, we're like, what is it in the tobacco? Like, what is the problem? But to get them to where a trial is, especially on their salaries and their availability, it's almost a luxury to be a part of a clinical trial.
3: And your son is 17 years old and he has sickle cell?
1: Yes. And we are um, blessed because he doesn't... He has hemoglobin. It's a lot of different forms of sickle cell, so he doesn't have SS, which would be considered like the worst. That means you got a trait from both parents of some sort, but he has SC, because you know you, you would think, you know, you know, I have a lot of health professionals in my family, and so people say, why do people still have sickle cell? We know it's inherited, you know, but still one in 10 African-American babies have the trait when they're born. And a lot of – I mean, sometimes they don't find out they have the trait to their son is playing football and falls out in high school. Like, oh, my goodness. Would you put your son in a trial? Is this something oh my, you would I do? Think, I think I would. I would, um, I would ask him. But he's such a scientific mind. He probably put himself in a trial. I so mean, he's so crazy.
3: I'm saying this because you obviously have a personal connection to yeah. the story. And there is something – so there's something about the story that is not that not as surprising, which is that uh, Af- the African-American community distrusts the medical um, profession because of what has happened in the past. I, I think that on Code Switch, that doesn't matter. We do a lot of stories that are not surprising because they're important stories to do. But I think that the way into the stories have to be maybe more personal in, in order to engage the audience. So if you were going to tell this story about how difficult it is to get um, African-Americans to join cl- clinical trials, I would, I would report this story out from a first-person perspective and have your son in it and have it be, and, and weave in all of these other characters, but have you two be the main focus of the story. Does anyone else... Have
1: any? I yeah, mean, when I first um, I started this pitch, it's totally changed. I keep finding out more. So now I'm on clinicaltrials.com all the time to see, you know, what, and then I actually found a trial. I, I told my son, I was like, oh, I said, but you have to go to the NIH to be a part of this in DC. So now it may even affect what college he attends. Oh, yeah. So maybe so he recording. may go to the University of Maryland just to get close. Because I was like, how can we get to DC, you know, every month, you know, just for you to be a part of that? You know, it's
3: and even so we've been
1: thinking about that. Actually, do you have
3: conversations with older members of the, your family who are like, "Nah, don't do that. Don't trust.
1: Don't well, trust my, the system." Well, my dad is is a retired um, doctor of pharmacology. So he and he's the one that has sickle cell SC because when we were tested as babies, we all came up the we didn't have sickle cell or the trait, but the tests have gotten better. So I didn't even know I was a carrier of any kind of anemia. I mean, it's amazing. We thought we were free because, you know, my mother didn't have sickle cell. But, um, no, my dad, who's been doctoring on himself all his life, you know, for his um, sickle cell. But, now they're like, go for it, you know.
4: So I, I, I'm going to jump in. Well, that's I, my
1: family in Florida now. My family in Mobile, Alabama, say a few... <laughs> Which,
3: Tuskegee, Alabama. Yes. I, mean, I right. mean, so what I'm, what I'm hearing is it would be really interesting to, to yes. have those conversations with multi-generations in your family and also who are dealing with this and kind of struggling over whether this right. is the right thing to do, how to build, rebuild trust. Tell the story from the perspective of your family, go to Mobile, Alabama, Um, and talk to older family members who may think that it's not cool for your son to join one of these trials and for you to have this conversation with your son. I feel like Mm -hmm. that is how this would make a really beautiful code switch story about something, a subject that yes, we've heard about before, but I think that's the way to kind of break it Mm -hmm. um, and make it new and surprising.
4: That's what I was gonna say. I think the personal angle in is a way that you can explore and we can get at some of the tension and maybe the tension in your family leads to the larger tension in the African American community. But I think going through kind of this door of your family and out so that then we can explore all these topics. Well, why don't they? Well, if, if they don't participate in clinical trials, then there's not gonna be any new drugs. And I think once you set the table with your personal experience, the listener is kind of more primed to hear about all of these other, the drugs that come up and why they don't come up and why they don't because we're like, okay, she's dealing with this, her son's dealing with this. Gosh, that's a tough choice. Would I do that? I don't know. Well, one side of her family's cool with it, the other's not, and, and so, And those are all points, I think, whether you have sickle cell or not, we all know about family tension. We -hmm. all know about hard decisions around diseases. Um, And I think that's a way to kind of get us all into the story so that you can explain the really important things um, about the medicines and the trials.
3: And I like, and I would love to work with you on that. there i think that would be
1: amazing what's so crazy is that you know how you send your kids between me and my sister we have like five boys and we would send them to florida every summer and i actually was accusing my mother of not of not taking better care of my little T money you know because she tried to treat him like the rest of the boys i said like, he's not like the rest of the boys you know you have to make sure he rests and he and she was like no he's fine when he gets to me and I was like, Mama,
2: yes. you know, this is There'll a blood disease.
1: There will be tension. So now it's making me think, oh, Lord, you know, going back for years. <laughs> oh, my God. But thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to move on to um, pitching Audible. Yeah. Jason Guts. You ready, Jason? Jason um, writes podcasts and talks about big ideas in the real world and in fiction for children and adults. He's the creator and host of Think Again, one of iTunes' best podcasts of 2015. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. All right. Thank you. Um, he also uh, has been, uh, created an original series called Tuesdays with Bill, which which is uh, with Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, Jason's stuff has be- has been referenced in... Huffington Post Uh, and Chicago Tribune. (laughs) Jason's got it going on. All right, go ahead, Jason.
5: Yeah, okay. Um, So I'm here to pitch a serial podcast idea that is about the tension between finding yourself and inventing yourself. And uh, each episode begins with a fiction story uh, about two friends, Bingo and Plenjamast, who travel the world reinventing themselves each time through grandiose schemes that always end in disaster
2: on a planet called earth in a solar system in a galaxy there live two very normal dudes a lot like you and me except of course that nobody can ever truly be like anybody else and maybe you are not a dude hey bingo and blend your mask each has demons in his past each is seeking happiness always it is hit or miss bingo
5: Bingo's kind of a Charlie Brown figure—hapless, um, curious, hopeful, but also extremely insecure and a bit pessimistic. And Plenjamast is a, a grand dreamer, always trying to come up with some huge new system to solve his problems and everybody else's. Um, the show is called Idiators, by the way, which is a which squishes together idiots and um, ideation in the Silicon Valley sense of like making up ideas and. Um, And most of the audio you're going to hear today is from episode two. But this brings you up to speed on what happened in episode one. Last time on The Idioters. Plengemask gets fired from some kind of logistics job. Then he meets Bingo, and they almost immediately become best friends. Bingo wins hundreds of millions of dollars in the Powerball lottery. And not knowing what to do with himself, he disappears to the south of France, where his life promptly falls apart. Plengemask tracks him down and moves into his crumbling 17th century chateau and all is well, except for the nightly scrabbling of thousands of rats in the walls. Okay, so in episode two, Plenjamas decides that fear is uh, Bingo's biggest problem and the biggest problem for all of humanity, and that rats are the physical embodiment of human fear, and we've driven them deep underground, and if only we could release them and confront them, then all would be well. So here he explains his plan to Bingo.
6: Maxim, keep coming. Keep coming, and stop. Perfect, right there. Await further instructions. A backhoe? What's that for? It's called the digger, I believe.
5: Digger is what it's called in picture books. Like, are you my mother? No, I'm a digger.
6: This digger, Bingo, is the key to unlocking your true self. This is my true self, and right now, it's sluggish and irritable. Fear, Bingo. Fear is what keeps you from total self-realization. It's what makes you sluggish and irritable. The self is like an avocado, you see? I always thought it was more like an onion or an artichoke. Preposterous. It's an avocado. And the true self is the pit. And what you currently think of as your true self is the skin. What's the flesh? Nobody knows. Remember what you were saying when we fell asleep last night about the rats in the walls? Yeah, man,
5: I hate them. Why? Because they're so creepy. Why? Because they're always
6: scheming. You can't trust them. Why? Because they want what we have. Pizza, milk, Nutella. But why do they want our pizza and Nutella, Bingo? Because they're hungry. And why are they hungry? Because they don't have enough food. And why don't they have enough food? Because they live underground. And why do they live underground? Because we're always trying to kill them. Bingo! Yes? No, the other Bingo. Forget it, I'm just going to say Eureka from now on
5: okay so um they smat. they go they take the digger or the backhoe down to the um cellar of the chateau they smash through the walls and there's this ancient catacombs where which is the kingdom of rats millions of rats live down there they meet the rat high king extumeniscata the 654th and here's his entrance song or part of it Tread carefully,
2: my friend, for you have come into the court of the Rat High King. Well, it's a lot to comprehend, for a bipedal hairless above groundling, you know you've got your little boxes so neat, neat, neat. You've got your fridges stocked with things you love to eat, 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 but we've been here all the while, deep beneath your street. Because we're rats, hey, and we are really quite clever If you're hiding the pellet, well, we are pulling the lever Because we're rats
5: <laughs> So, um, so, so Plengemast, they, they talk for a while Ex turns out to be a, a pretty nice fellow who's interested in philosophy and very lonely They talk some philosophy And then Plengemast um, tries to convince him to bring his people above ground to
6: live with humanity again Imagine, sire, a generation of little fuzzy baby rats born with the sun on their backs. Not confined to sewers and subway tracks, but free to roam cities and forests at will, casually nibbling a berry off a bush or bits of croissant from the buttery fingers of tourists in Central Park. Never to feel self-loathing. The unendurable stench of your own sewage matted fur. You shall bathe in crystal clear rivers and perfume yourselves with wildflower. My people shall dance our ratly dance upon the highest mesas.
5: There's a ratly dance? Okay, um, so... The, the second part of, of each episode is from real life. These are conversations between me and my friend Eric, who are making the show together. Um, we come up with the plots, we play. I play Bingo, he plays pl- plunge and those two characters are in a way based on each of our tragic flaws. I tend to be more pessimistic and skeptical, he tends to be more grandiose and delusional, and so this is us r- r- wrestling in real life with the, the, the things that the fiction part turns into comedy. <laughs>
6: I need some word or concept in ideally our language that I can use as a mantra when I'm getting off track and kind of mutter like, "Come on, Eric," like blank. You know what I mean? What like,
5: about like simp- simp- simplify? Like I mean, uh, you,
6: that's scary. No, because like I'm obsessed with com- no, because I'm obsessed with complexity. So then that makes me I-, I equate simplicity with stupidity, even though I know that's totally wrong what about so clarity
5: if, is clarity Clarity
6: does it for me yeah clarity does it for me a lot that's that's a very important word I used that. to when I was a kid like I
5: you know when I was still praying which was like probably yeah. I was 12 um I can I for a long period of time every single night I prayed which just sounds so intellectual and precious or whatever but I, li- I literally prayed with all my heart for clarity yeah. Like every night, like I was just like, beautiful. give me clarity, you know, um, so beautiful. yeah, because it seems like if you've got clarity, then everything else kind of works out. So that um, we think that there's an audience out there of smart, curious um, people who are struck by and struggling with some of the absurdities of 21st century life as we are, and, um, and who would relate to this. And we don't know of anything else that's dealing with these issues in this way. Thank you. Sure, thank you.
4: Um, so what I will say first is that I really enjoyed listening to that. It was sound rich um, and fun um and funny um and those are um you know a lot of what we're looking for in the comedy um and entertainment kind of the stuff that we're we're making um it's musical so that's um also different from a lot of the stuff um that we're doing and i it's different in a good way um ha- has the has it been released no okay um
5: there are, yeah Go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. And no, that's it.
4: And yeah. you're imagining um, an audience, young adult, adult yeah, kind I think of... Yeah,
5: I, I imagine college students, although I, you know, that, that's what's in my mind. I feel, I, honestly, I know that one is supposed to picture one's ideal audience person, right? But when I write, it's very hard for me to think of anything other than sort of Myself at a different age. I, I mean, that may sound narcissistic or something, but that's that's kind of who I'm writing to. I mean, it's the stuff I would like to listen to.
4: So. Okay, and then in terms of per- producing, would would you envision this as something that um, you you two would produce in collaboration with us, or uh, you? I
5: that's something I'm open to discussing. Producing it on my own. By the way, I I did um, all the writing. All the production, all the MIDI scoring, all the music, um, I wrote the script. Er- Eric uh, and I talk about ideas, and then he he acts. I also do all the voices on it for now. This is all because of, you know, time and economic constraints. Um, I would, I, if I had more time and if I had, you know, resources behind it, I could get it done a lot faster, and so I'd be open to discussing different possibilities.
4: Okay. Um, so, um... Uh, I, I liked it. I would like to um, um, take, take it back um, and pitch it to my team and, and see, see where we can go from there. But it was a, definitely, for me, it was a fun listen. Um, it's different. Um, and I thought it explored some kind of interesting things and went in some places that currently, I don't think we're doing anything like that.
5: Very cool, thank you.
4: No
3: problem, thank you. Right. Can I ask you can I ask you a quick question, Jason? Oh, so sorry. Yeah. Um yes. just for clarification, so the discussion that you had at the end is would you be is that part of the podcast? Would yeah. you end every podcast with
5: yeah, my friend
3: and, and I are gonna talk through this now.
5: Well, yeah, uh, I wouldn't necessarily phrase it that way, but <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. You know. But but um, I mean, what I don't want it to be is a sort of behind-the-scenes deal. Like I'm, we're, I've been recording many, many hours of our conversations and grabbing just tiny bits, which I think are illuminating about some of the struggles we're dealing with in our lives. We very rarely talk about the show itself, um, and uh, but a little bit, and and that's. Um, That's maybe a third of the show, so two-thirds, one-third, you know? um, Yeah.
3: Okay, that was all. Okay,
7: (laughs) sorry, yeah. I have a question for Millie, actually, Um, which is, like, I'm curious what happens when you, because I assume you guys get a lot of pitches, I'm curious, when you go to your team and pitch, like, do you guys talk about, say, with this particular story, what, do you imagine what kind of concerns people would have, and, like, what does it take to get from this to the next level
4: so um i would take something like this i would pit, i would pitch it back to the team they would listen um they would give feedback um so it may be anything from um they need more explanation or signposting they need more they feel like our um listeners will need structural changes to kind of understand um or they may say um, you know, the writing's great, but we want to give them some punch up. So there's a, there, I think there's a variety of, when we get pitches in this way, um, there's a variety of kind of things that we look at and look for, whether it's whether we feel that it's like ready to go and we can enter into something, Um, whether we feel like this is really great and we want to use, um, you know, send this to our development pool to develop a little bit differently um, in a way that maybe we feel is more tailored to what we want. Um, We could, um, if they think it's perfect, then it would go up to green light and get approved in that way. So there's kind of, once I take it back, there's a few ways that it can go um, from this point?
5: Um, Shruti, thank you for asking that. <laughs> That's a g- great question. Yeah. I, ne- I needed to know that.
7: You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> okay.
1: Thanks,
0: Jason. Good, Good luck. That was you. great. Yeah. Yeah. And we are going to move on to pitching to Reply All. Aaron? Come on up, Aaron, A round of applause for Erin is wearing
3: some awesome glasses. Aaron
0: with the awesome glasses. Aaron is a freelance journalist and cartographer based in New York and San Francisco. New York and San Francisco. Um, his work has been featured in The New Yorker, New York Times, This American Life, The Atlantic, Slate, and more. He's raised in Encinitas, California and fell in love with mapping and storytelling long before he learned you could call those things journalism. <laughs> Go ahead, Aaron.
8: Thank you. I didn't think there was anything more nerve-wracking than emailing a pitch to producers that you respect. (laughs) Um, Okay, so, um, all right. When the cornflakes arrived in New York City, there were 40 of them, 40 flakes. And each flake was lovingly enshrined in its own individual plastic box. And each box had on it a unique nine-digit serial code that told you every single thing you could possibly want to know about that particular cornflake. So the seventh digit, for example, in the serial code told you the shape of the cornflake. If it was a zero, the cornflake was flat, two for a boat, three for a cone, four for an S-curl. Each digit down the line told you some other thing about that cornflake, the brand, or, or, or the texture, the bumpiness, something like that. Um, this meticulous, obsessive cornflake taxonomy came from the mind of a woman named Anne Griffiths. And Anne Griffiths teaches uh, textile arts at community colleges in, in rural England. And ever since she was a kid, she's had this passion for collecting and this impulse for the things that people normally overlook. I, was there was there an Anne at the age of seven who was collecting you know bottle caps and arranging them in different? Um, groups there was an Anne at
6: the age of 7 or 8 or I can't remember that Colette spent a whole 6 week summer vacation collecting ice lolly sticks off the beach (laughs) and off the street and off everywhere she could and putting them into little bundles and making little charts of where she picked them up and how many she picked up and how dark and how light and how orange or pink or whatever you know I can remember my mother saying you know this is complete rubbish no, you you're not keeping all this unhygienic dirty old lolly sticks in the bedroom <laughs> so you know i was a frustrated collector ever since i was a child
8: so uh, just a quick translation lolly sticks are like popsicle sticks so she's picking up like chewed upon popsicle sticks and organizing them by color and amount chewed upon so a- Anne you know, might think of herself as a frustrated collector or as an outcast, but she is far from alone. And I, I talk to people, I talk to a, uh, you know, a middle-aged electrician in New Hampshire that much to his wife's dismay has filled his entire barn with family portraits of families that he's never met, that he collected from the local junkyard. I, I talked to a, a woman in, in Maine who had dedicated two decades of her life to building a folk museum in her garage dedicated to the 2000 umbrella covers that she's collected, categorized, and displayed over the last two decades. And you know these are the things you pull off a new umbrella and never think about ever again. She loves them and she wants to share them and categorize them with the world. And, the sad th- I'm like these people and the sad thing for people like like them and I think for people like me is that oftentimes it's a lonely obsession and you don't typically get to share it with the world and so your collections they languish in obscurity in dusty vitrines in your living room or in boxes in your garage and you know your your parents and your loved ones they think of you as a trash collector or a junk picker um, but I realized I never explained what Anne's cornflakes were doing in New York City um, that all started with an email, an email to a very special inbox, infomuseum.com. And, and on the other end of that email is a museum curator named Alex Kalman. And he, um, he, like these folks, has a deep appreciation for the bizarre, the mundane, the overlooked, and the obsessive collection. So much so that he's built an entire museum dedicated to collections like these, um, and he shares their eccentricities. The museum is built into an abandoned elevator shaft in a faceless alley in downtown Manhattan, and it's it's the kind of place that you would only find if you had that same appreciation for um, the romance of finding something special where it shouldn't be. Um, so, this story as i imagine it would be a love letter to this human impulse to collect and the one thing that these collectors all share in common is they found a kind of collector's salvation in emails sent to this this magical inbox on the other side of which someone who finally gave gave uh, a, a validation to the thing that they have obsessed over and this email you know this email correspondence would unspool in a way that collectors describe to me as coming home as kind of finding, you know, people like them for the first time ever. And uh I would end the piece, well we would we would basically follow these collectors and learn about them through their email correspondence and eventually I would like to end the piece with kind of considering the importance of this collection for the world, these kinds of collections for the world. There's another man in the museum who, who's collected Saudi Arabian pool toys that have been censored by the religious police. So women who are normally playing carefree in bikinis standing next to inflatable dolphins have been scribbled over with, with Sharpies to the point where they're like amorphous, genderless, faceless blobs. And I think through museum we learn that these collections that might seem silly or pointless to people can teach us volumes about important issues of our time that we don't get to learn through articles and we only get to learn through the, the passion, the obsession, and the perseverance of, of these collectors.
7: So I have a bunch of questions. Shoot, yeah. um, First off, it's like, I can, I can hear the ideas in the story and I can hear the things that you're pointing to, but my first question is, who are we following? Like, what, what is, like, who, who are we meeting? Who takes us through the story? And like, what is happening to them that they have to kind of grapple with and that we can watch and like, figure out a thing from, from like watching them? Like is that person you?
8: So I'm gonna give you an answer that maybe isn't the most like isn't the most convincing answer for getting the pitch sold, but I'm going to use this opportunity to ask you maybe a question. So as a freelancer, I'm constantly wondering how deep I develop my pitches and how much of my own time I invest in reporting out these stories before coming to someone like you. Because I've been in the instance where I've deeply reported a story that I think is going to look like this, and then I take it to a producer and like, love the topic, drop that character, we're going to focus around someone who you haven't even met yet. So I don't know the answer to that question yet, and I could give you an answer. Um, Like, I think that, as I reported the story and I interviewed more collectors, I'd find someone who had that some like nugget of conflict that we could focus around. Right now, I imagine in my mind, there's somebody who's been emailing to museum a lot and who has like a particularly difficult relationship with the person they live with, they're tired of their collections, they're tired of their eccentricity and they're fighting, fighting, fighting for validation and then they can find that validation. the other option would be focusing it more around me and having it more like a tone poem, love poem to the idea of collecting. And we, we hear different collectors come in and out with their own emotions and their own stories, but mostly it's about my, my love and appreciation for this genre of collecting.
7: Is there a thing you collect?
8: Oh, I collect a lot. Yeah.
7: Is there a specific thing that you collect? There are many specific things. <laughs> so
8: I. <laughs> I have a collection of mailboxes from around the world that I've like toted home um, from different places that I've visited. I have a collection of like things ripped off of bathroom walls that I've collected over the years. I have a collection of uh, cigarette tax stamps like I don't know if you've ever noticed but in a lot of places cigarette boxes have these gorgeous little like decorative tax stamps and I have all of them. I collect all. I, I just collect things that are boring or ephemeral and beautiful, and I tack them up all over my wall so my, my house looks like a junkyard.
7: I understand why you have two homes, two different
6: That's exa- things. <laughs> That's
8: exactly right, yeah. I've had to invest in real estate.
7: Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I, I freelanced for years, okay. um, and so I've had all these same questions, which is like, how much do you obsess over a thing? How much tape do you collect? Um, I found the bo- the being on both sides, like being on the pitching side and on the side receiving pitches that people often come with big ideas that don't mean anything really when you just see it in written form because all of these ideas, they're interesting ideas but you you need to have the person who will give you those feelings that will make you ask those questions without you asking them, right? Like Because you never want to have to say those things in the story and so the thing you said just now, which is like, oh, I'd have to figure out who's the character. For me, that's like the first thing I want to know. Like, who's the person? Why am I interested? Are they interesting? I want to kind of like either hear them talk or like hear you describe them to me and tell me a little more of like a once upon a time thing that begins and ends with this person. There can be multiple characters. It's harder at a pitch level though. Like at the pitch level, you really want the backbone person um, and yeah, so I feel like that that's the first thing to find and if it takes you time and you end up wasting hours of research and like time like going to places and meeting people, that's fine I feel like that's time well spent because you need to believe in your character when you send us that pitch and you need to be able to answer questions about that person and their motivations um, I have, <laughs> I've over research the crap out of every story I've ever pitched. And I, like, will meet a person that I'm interested in, I'll start recording right away. Like, I'll, you know, whether it's on the phone or when I meet them, um, because I feel like often there's things that come up that you'd want to use later, like in the pitch uh, or in the story, but I need to spend enough time with them to know, like, what what's the shape of this thing? You don't need to know the end of the story, but you need to kind of know that this person has enough Things that have happened to them that will keep me interested for more than five minutes. You know? Yeah.
4: Yep. Cool. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Did Did you do you want to oh, I just uh, I love the whole collect collecting the mundane will tell us so much about who we are as a society. When you said that, I was like, oh, I love that. <laughs> and if there is, I mean, if if there is a character that tells a story about race, and they don't want it, we'll take it. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was with you from beginning, middle to end. I was like, I was into this, even though there, I didn't know who the character was. I loved Saudi Arabian pool toys, (laughs) Uh, you know, so, sure. Maybe maybe I can get your business going. Yeah, I think Reply All is,
7: it's like, it's tricky in that respect. It's like, just, we do, there's no formula, but there is a certain core to most of the stories we do, especially with contributors. And so, yeah, it's It's like, I'm trying to imagine if we just had the anecdotes, which are fun anecdotes. I just, we haven't, yeah, done that. But I feel like sometimes the outcome of this is, maybe it's like, oh, a ghost story.
3: Yeah, we've only been around for a year and a half, so we're just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. So, which is
9: great for all of
3: you. <laughs> Cool. Um, yeah, so we haven't like kind of centered in like what exactly it is. We're we're still experimenting with a lot of things. All I know is when you were telling this, I was feeling something. And oh, that's good. That's, awesome. gu- that's, yeah. that's yeah. good. It was there was a visceral I had a visceral feeling. Cool. Um, so yep. Nice. Well, thank you so much. It was like an honor to pitch in front of you guys. Thank
0: you, yeah. Appreciate it.
3: Thank
1: you.
0: We're gonna open it up to some questions from you guys. Um, so if anyone has any questions, you can go ahead and line up at the mic. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask is something that you were talking a little bit about, Shruti, which is, sounds like like what is the difference between a topic and a story, Yeah. right? Can you, can someone talk a little bit more about that or?
7: Yeah, we'll get to you one moment. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, um, I used to answer the emails uh, at Radiolab when I was interning there, and it is truly amazing the things that people will send, because I, I remember one guy, he kept writing in, and he was like, I really want, I really would love to, uh, I have this idea for a story at Radiolab, and that is house plants." And, and that was it. It was just like one line, and he wrote in multiple <laughs> times. I was really, yeah, I enjoyed engaging this person. Um, but, I, I mean, the obvious answer is... A, there's a topic, I mean, um, the, the first story I heard, which I loved, by the way, um, the, the topic is sickle cell um, disease and the fact that it's really difficult to get people to you know, participate in these trials. To me, that's a topic. But the story in there is my son is 17 years old. We've had to deal with this. You know my family's had to deal like that there's like an arc to that that comes from like the moment You figured out that your child has this thing to living with it to dealing with like the the external Factors right like whether it's family or trying to go to doctors and trying to get like the kind of treatments that you need so I, for me, when I say character, it, it could be you, it could be somebody else, but really a person through which we are exploring some specific question within this like, larger topic umbrella. Yes. Catherine. Ah. You ready? Skipping, so
0: no. Like, oh, cool. Come on down, <laughs> Catherine. Catherine's <laughs> <You're smiling. Happy laughs> pitching to reply all. Ah. Catherine's here. in the house. Yes. She's an audio producer and food anthropologist. I don't know what that is, but I like the sound of it. Um, Focused on making audio-based storytelling more accessible for underrepresented communities. Catherine is going to be pitching Reply
3: All.
9: Thanks. All right, so my pitch is about what happens when big tech opens their headquarters in small towns. In a lot of ways, like we look at tech and we think, okay, you are an obvious hero in this big conversation we're having in the United States about rural, forgotten America and joblessness. And here we have a really interesting story that's not being told. It's about Epic, the second largest medical tech company in the United States. It's about Judith Faulkner, the wealthiest woman in tech who started it, and it's about Verona, Wisconsin, a town that not too long ago was 4,500 people, and now it's 10,000, and it's struggling. What's interesting about this particular story is it could teach us about a lot of things that are going on, and I know this from interviewing now people for months, too many, um, about age discrimination and technology in this town, about a big tech company taking over this tiny town, and then the really interesting way that this particular company, Epic, Epic is trying to serve the town and maybe nobody's even noticing. So I think we need some context. And it starts with something that affects 54% of the people in this room. And they're called electronic medical health records or EHRs, which basically means that All of our medical histories are now put into these records that can follow us everywhere as medical blueprints about what medicine you've taken, and it goes with you for life and insurance companies and all of that. This was started in 1979 by Judith Faulkner. She was a programmer um, out of Wisconsin, and she started with $6,000 and now privately owns Epic. It's really interesting because what she spends all of her time now on is building essentially a Disneyland campus in Wisconsin. We're talking building buildings uh, themed on Game of Thrones and Indiana Jones and Alice in Wonderland where there's um, a two-scale central station that has potato people riding on subways between these different campuses. And then rats, rats, where are you, rats? Fake, rat, fake rats, just like lining the different areas. So it's a really nuanced and complex campus. But for 10,000 people who work there, which note that's the same size as the population of this town, there's no childcare, there's no gym. And when I've asked employees about that, they say it's because they wanna make sure that they're not taking away the services from the small town. But then, and this is that second character I'm a little nervous to introduce, there's Tina. And Tina's lived in Verona her whole life. And she's 51. She has 25 more years of experience than 80% of the employees who are hired by Epic. She didn't get a job there, as most people don't get jobs at, at Epic who live in Verona and they're having to move out. So it's a really interesting tension that's going on between this exotic campus that when I ask people about why it exists, they say, oh, it's for the town people because they're the ones using it. Most of our team are traveling remote anyways. And then a town that is struggling to integrate itself into this campus. And then these two really interesting women, Judith Faulkner, who now puts all of her time and energy almost in this love demonstration to everything that is possible in the imagination through this very weird campus in Wisconsin. And then then what the community is saying about this place and how it's telling a story of new America with technology and old America that's really struggling to keep up.
7: shake it out (laughs) (laughs) catching me at a great moment i'm obsessed with manufacturing right now like it's all like there's so many great great stories um to be found Uh, so what i am a little bit confused about though is you were calling it a campus what are they making
9: i know it's like this is welcome to this crazy thing i am discovering, which is the amount of money and time and energy that are put into these tech campuses where everything lives on the cloud and most people don't actually have to be at this campus anyways. So what they're making is a software that has your medical health records on it. That's, that's what it has and they're hiring like between July 2017 and now they've hired A thousand new employees. So they're just growing at a rate that, like, you can't even, and these people are just going from hospital to hospital to hospital to help get people's medical records on this software. So a lot of these campuses are, they're not full of, they're full of potato people. Like, (laughs) what are potato people? I know, I, I needed a photo too it's like what you'd imagine. Like a, a, like potatoes as all these parts, but they wear clothes and they ride subways. And that's not even the weird thing. Like there, <laughs> there's so many weird things about this campus, but it's really, it's not built for the staff who work there. It's kind of built as this attraction for this town. And meanwhile, I've talked to farmers who were saying they couldn't sleep at night because of the rumble of concrete trucks driving past their house because they're building things so fast. They have five new intended campuses, sub-campuses that are based on, yeah, Game of Thrones and Alice in Wonderland where all the furniture is going to be stuck from the top of the ceiling. So people can't, like, you can't use these spaces to work. It's like, they're just there. And and um, I Talk to Judith's neighbor, who because um, I'm a creepy stalker um, and she she doesn't do that many interviews, um, cons- especially considering she's like the wealthiest, most powerful woman in tech in the US She doesn't get her picture taken, but I think it's because a lot of people are asking about the product, and I do think I have a good chance of asking her like what? what goes into this campus and where did you get the vision? Because people say that she spends all time, like she'll tear down sections of the campus and rebuild it back up based on this vision she has of what she's building.
7: So you're saying campus to mean like an office complex, It's basically. an office complex, yeah. but of and, all these
9: little campuses.
7: And is it an all-in-one town, all or are they building in it in multiple places? Nope. And so they have, I'm just trying to understand what the company does, which I think is the first thing you'd want to explain in order to just figure out, like, what what the story is about. Sure. Um, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like they have a bunch of employees that go to hospitals all over the country and take records and digitize them?
9: No, so the doctors are actually, so there's this thing called charting. Uh And I'm not a doctor, but maybe I can put it in simpler terms than a doctor can. It's been a lot of conversations, so if anyone's a doctor, I'm sorry if I'm oversimplifying it. But they used to just write down your medical records. And then, so if if there was something, if you went into a hospital and got medication prescribed, and then you went into a different hospital, there wouldn't be a cross-reference of that that record unless someone called. But now, through charting, this is all digitalized, so it's going to follow you everywhere. It's gonna, so this one company has 54% of all of our medical information on its software. So what they're doing is basically teaching people how to use this software, because it's actually not that intuitive. It's kind of clunky, and it's still using technology from the 1970s, but it's sort of the best thing that there is out there for making all these hospitals be able to speak and share medical information.
7: And these buildings Mm -hmm. in the campus, are they housing, are they like data centers, or are people actually sitting at computers and doing things?
9: People sit and do things. Okay. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they're there almost as like gathering places as everybody comes back. So one of the significant things is there's nine stories underneath one of the confer- or one of the buildings. There's a conference room that fits like 20,000 people, which is really weird.
7: And and like how quickly did this happen? So Mm -hmm. it all happened in this one town in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So is it over ten years? Is Mm -hmm. it what's Yeah,
9: I mean she's been building it up since nineteen seventy nine, but it's really made its big time moment with Obama administration. And so that's when there like this quote unquote monopoly kind of took place. Another key user I should say is that doctors are flown by hospitals and spend most of their time, like not most of the time, but they spend three weeks a year getting trained by Epic of how to integrate this tech system into their hospitals. So a lot of it are for doctors who come in and are interacting with the space and being like, oh, Epic is cool. And they, the employees I've talked to have described like big execs from major, major hospitals coming in and riding this like 12-foot banana and that everyone loves to take pictures of the execs on the banana.
7: And then <laughs> did they? do they... So uh, the... <laughs>
9: It's hard to get I also I banana. heard the bananas made from bottle caps. Just.
7: Uh, and most of the people that moved here, because it sounds like it's a small town, do they come from all over?
9: No, so they, um, so a lot of the people live in Madison, Wisconsin, which is nine miles from Verona at this point. Um, so most people, well, so because Verona is only ten thousand people, there's ten thousand people that work at this campus. So in this tiny, tiny, what was an agrarian town now a one-bedroom apartment costs twelve hundred bucks. So like people can't even afford it anymore. Yeah, I have to wrap up. Yeah, Yeah. I could talk. Any
0: final, any final advice? Yeah, I think
7: um, I like the idea of focusing on a place and like like figuring out change that happened in a really like constrained period of time. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time looking at different things, talking to people, I think your challenge now is to really figure out like the bare bones version of like what is the story, but but explaining it to the point where I should be able to read the pitch and like not um, have basic questions about like what it is that the company does. I feel like there's maybe a simple way to explain it and then but what would make the story interesting to me, like a thing where I'm like, oh, I would really love to produce that. It's like, again, sorry, so I'm like, <laughs> I'm repeating myself, but it, like, it, who is the one person? Like, is it a person who grew up in the town and is working there and has all these like feelings of like, oh, I have a job, but I really hate them. And like, what, what, who, who's the person um, that you want to use to kind of pitch the story and like what, what exactly is the problem? You know, like what, I have that person. What are they struggling This is helpful
9: because I could have done the pitch differently. So. Yeah, I
7: good. think it's like what what are like I think there's a lot of different pieces here and you you just need to figure out a way to sort of squeeze them into like um, one person's path and, and understanding like how this person's li- li- like life changed with the growth of this company and like what what is exactly the thing that they're trying to
9: figure out or struggle with right now? Cool. I have a follow-up, but I think we're out of time, right?
0: Yeah, we are. Thank oh, you so much. Sorry. No. Um, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> thank you. Uh, before we wrap up, there were some pitching stories that I know we have up here on the panel. I know that some of you have had some interesting experiences pitching, and I just want to... I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit. I know, Shireen, you were talking about your experiences pitching.
3: I worked on shows at NPR, and so we would have an editorial meeting every morning where everyone would come and, you know, they'd have their ideas. And what I didn't realize was most people just ripped their ideas directly from the front page of the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) But... So I would be like, oh, this is this thing you know that I saw and I thought it was really interesting and really cool and wh- maybe we can follow up on it. And um, this woman who was an editor at the time and a woman of color, she took me outside and she was like, you are never going to make it in this business if you just pitch like some cool, interesting thing that you were talking about with your friends. I get it. You're really enthusiastic and everyone finds you charming and, <laughs> you know... <laughs> enthusiastic but you're actually never gonna get a pitch on a show if you keep doing that I hated this woman for years by the way for that but um, but I but it did make me come correct and come prepared and especially in a meeting where it's a rapid-fire thing to know who exactly you want to talk to is just the first thing that you should have ready, whether you work on a show or whether you want to do it for a podcast. Who's your character? If you're on a show and you're producing, you know who is that interview uh, that you want to lock in. And so, yeah, it really helped me to make sure that I had at least that, you know, the one line which I knew the story was about, and then the person that I was going to talk to. Um, I'm still mad at her though. That <laughs> I was like, "Do you do this to everyone?"
7: But anyway. That's funny. I think the thing that I figured out, I did a lot of pitches, lots of pitches to random people. Um, I would be... In in New York, there's this thing called the radio... There's, like, a public radio list. And, yeah. And, man, that thing saved my life. Um, uh, When I showed up, I I used to work in a totally different medium and was living in another country, uh, worked at a radio station there for the first time, was dying to come back to the United States because I was like, that's where all the good stuff is and coming back it's like oh my god I don't know any of these people I don't know how to like write them story ideas it seems like a really yeah it's like and I had all these questions like how much do you research and like what should the pitch be structured like I used to listen to actually recordings of old pitch panels to figure some stuff out the one big thing I've learned though is that there's no failure in pitches like it's actually true where I would pitch a story to a place, and they would say, like, oh, can't do it for this or this reason. And I would take that, kind of, like, rejigger it and pitch it to another show. And most of them got taken, and some of them are, like, sitting in a box of mine where I'm, like, will be made at some point, like, mm-hmm. in my lifetime, I hope. You know, it's just, it's, like, don't don't feel any sense of with every piece of feedback you get, like, oh, it didn't work for this show, but maybe it works for Code Switch, I feel like it's really, like, pitches should feel like, like, almost like gum, like, they're flexible and can be, like, used to always make a story better until they find a home.
0: Yeah. Millie, any pitching advice, pitching stories? Sure. Um, I think one of the things
4: that I've noticed, um, you know, about uh, pitching and, and kind of listening to pitches is that, we are for the most part all curious people. We have lots of questions. we are on a quest for lots of information and you know we get excited usually if it's something that we want to pitch and share with others and you know we can't wait to tell people. Um, and And one of the things that I think you know that I caution people on um, and has been mentioned today is um, two things. one, um, when you're pitching to someone, um, you definitely want to relay your passion, but you always remember people need a way in. Um, they need a character, whether that character is a person or a place or a thing. We need something tangible that gets us into this story so that we can come along on this journey with you and so that we care. Um, a lot of times pitches are about really great topics and really great things, and they are things that we should know, but the pitcher has made the barrier for entry so difficult that we can't get in and we wind up not caring when we really should. Um, The second point is when you're crafting your pitch along with how we're gonna get in, um, resist vomiting everything you know at the person who's taking the pitch. Um, because as someone who receives pitches, our brains are like, who's the character? What way in? How will this work for my show? How long is this gonna be? And when it's like, there's this really great story of these lovers and 62% of lovers drown each other, but sometimes that doesn't happen, but it only happens in Montana, but no one lives in Montana because 20% of the people live in Texas. But this story is not really about Texas. It's about <laughs> people in love in California who, and and then the person who's receiving the pitch is like, um, I don't, is this about love, relationships, statistics, (laughs) the West Coast? I'm not sure. Um, So when you're going through your pitches, I find that sometimes when I'm really passionate about a pitch, I write it up. I try to share it with someone that's not an audio producer, that's not a journalist. Mm -hmm. See if they understand it. See if they would listen. If they have questions, sometimes that's your best kind of feedback because you're like oh someone who doesn't produce audio doesn't work for public radio doesn't make podcasts doesn't do this work at all they would be your listener they have to find it exciting entertaining informational and if you can get them in sometimes that's your hint that you're going the right way like oh somebody that doesn't do what I do would listen to this thing and understand its premise and and can come on this journey with me I've allowed them to come in and and kind of go on the ride so, that's that's what I think um in terms of feedback for pitching.
0: Thank you. I want to thank you, Millie. Thank you guys. I want to mention a couple things. Um one is that Air, who has presented this amazing panel today, has an amazing resource um online for pitching. A lot of advice and a lot of uh, basically all a lot of networks have their pitch guidelines on Air's site. So you can actually go there and figure out how exactly you need to pitch and who you need to pitch to. It's a great resource for that. Another thing I wanted to mention is that a few years ago, Sruthi did a live pitch here. And her pitch got picked up, right? Yeah, that was four years ago.
7: Four years ago. right? I pitched to David Krasnow of Studio 360. I had worked on that pitch. It's like I didn't even know, again, who it was going to be pitched to. I just had... There was this man... In um, who made pop-up books that I was just fascinated by, and I was kind of following him around, just recording things, and I decided at some point that it was it was it was for Studio 360. I pitched to David, um, and it was a horrible experience. I mean, it was not fun at all. Um, but I did have a lot of like post adrenaline. But what was super useful is afterwards, um, there were editors in. The piece did end up getting made for 360, like, months and months later, but there were editors in the crowd who I talked to and, like, made connections with, and I would, um, one of them, Peter Clowney, I, he he was like, just send me whatever pitches and I'll edit them for you, you know, for whatever show, which was, and he did, and wow. it was so amazing, awesome. like, there's just mentors everywhere, and, and it's, very heartening. Um, and another editor who's from Marketplace, actually, was like, oh, if she, you know, he doesn't take it, I'll take it. And I ended up pitching him other stories. So I just feel like, yeah. Getting it, it out there, just doing
0: it. it like you guys did today. Yes. Yeah. You did. Stand up, picture. everyone um, and pitch on and thank you for coming today.